the third hour of a very busy Saturday breakfast show, and it's the movie hour! Good morning, Richard. How yeah. are you? I'm fine. How are you? Not too bad. Soaked to the skin. Yes. Uh, but yes. uh, I should say it's good. Daniel Mumby in the studio. Yes. Who else could it be? <laughs> Everybody knows. Well, Paul's yes. come back. Good yes. heavens. Yes. Any 66 and do anything you want to do, um, starting the show off. And, of course, any 66 one of the bands that will be at Radio Aid on Monday evening at 6.30 at the Northumberland Hall. Tickets, £7.50. Available from everywhere in Annick. Yeah, you uh, can get them on the door from where yes, I gather. and it should be a good evening. Yeah, I'm yes. looking forward to it. Even if I am going to take my earplugs. <laughs> I shall be like the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on swiftly. <laughs> Moving on swiftly. Shall we have a look at what's going on in Annick? Yes. Uh, and uh, the 14th of June. Uh, I've run out of fingers. Is that uh, Thursday night? I think it is, isn't it? I think so, yes. yes. It is The Hunger Games. Yeah, which I think is great. I think it's one of the best films of this year. The thing I like about it most is that it's you know, a thinking person science fiction film which understands its fans. It's It has brutal scenes in it, but... No, it's really, really great. We'll come on to Thinking Person yeah. Science Fiction again when we do the top ten, because yeah. Prometheus. And then uh, Friday night at 8 o'clock and Saturday night at 7.30. Not sure why they're different times, but that's the way it goes. Um, it's Woman in Black. Which I think is, again, really good and shaping up to be one of the best of the year. It's a good, solid, old-fashioned ghost story, creepy chiller, with a pretty decent performance by Daniel Radcliffe. It, it's not the most groundbreaking thing in the world and I think the stage play is slightly better in terms of how it introduces the, the yeah. titular protagonist or antagonist but no it's a very good piece of filmmaking and it's good to see Hammer back in cinemas and having some success and Daniel Radcliffe no less exactly I, th I do think that Daniel Radcliffe acquits himself perfectly well and I've got my uh, tickets for that next Saturday looking forward to it the box office number by the way Annick 510785 if any of those um, films take your fancy let me know if anyone screams during the woman in black I will screen. I will uh, now on to the uh, Maltings in Berwick they've got a busy week coming up uh, this afternoon and tomorrow afternoon at 2.30 they've got A Cat in Paris which no is a pretty decent animation I think no the animation style reminded me of Tintin and it's you no know, clearly riffing on all those kinds of works from the 1920s I don't think it's a brilliant piece of work but for young children it's very nice great uh, tonight at 7 o'clock and then next Saturday at 2.30 and 7 o'clock Avengers Assemble which we'll come on to because it's still in the top 10 indeed uh, Monday evening at 8 o'clock Joe Nespo's Headhunters yeah which which is which is being billed as the new Joe Nesbo is being billed as the new Steve Glasson who did the Millennium Trilogy and it's yeah. a, it's a good gritty Scandinavian crime drama about um, art thieves, which um, no has no, enough of a claustrophobic nihilistic quality to keep you interested. I don't think it's as good as the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or its sequels. It's arguably more cinematic than the sequels because they were made for television, but just in terms of the kind of exploitation nastiness yeah. that made Girl with, the original Girl with Dragon Tattoo so interesting. So, But it's it's a very good thriller, so check it out. And then Tuesday evening, 7.30, is Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. Which, no, pretty decent from Lassa Halstrom. You, you know what you're going to get. You're going to get Schmaltz, you're going to get a predictable storyline, but you're also going to get performers that you really enjoy. So if you like Emily Blunt or Ewan McGregor, go see. And then another film that we'll be saying a little bit more about in a moment, possibly not in the most flattering tones, is um, American Pie Reunion, which is Wednesday evening at 7.30. Yep. 01289-330-999 if you um, want to go and see any of those films up in Berwick. 
On to the top ten, and at number ten, it's Moonrise Kingdom. Which is Wes Anderson partially back on form after a couple of you know, efforts where his smugness has dominated his style, because the last thing he did was Fantastic Mr. Fox, which was a classic example of a so-called children's film which was only meant for adults. Um, no, it's a story about young lovers who you know, run away and hide in the woods. It owes something to Swallows and Amazons, or to some extent Terence Malick's Badlands. You know, once you get in the zone with Wes Anderson, it's a pretty decent piece of work. I do think that there is there, the amount of ironic detachment is going to be off-putting for new people. So it's not going to win him any new fans, but if you like his you know, stuff like Royal Tenenbaums and Darjeeling yeah. Limited, then go see it. Seems uh, an interesting prospect, a cross between Badlands and Swallows and Amazons, anyway. Well, simply because of the yes. two lovers running yeah. away and so yeah. forth. Right, um, Ken Loach is back at number nine with The Angel's Share. Yeah, it's surprisingly upbeat for Ken Loach. I mean, we, we, we still think of Ken Loach as the man behind Cares and Kathy Come Home, yeah. you know, dep yeah. so-called depressing works, although there is much joy in Cares that people forget Indeed, about. Indeed, yes, it's a good film. Absolutely brilliant film, I and mean, it, it's, it's only depressing in the last five minutes when, no, something <gasps> happens, but when not going to give that away indeed even though the film's 45 years old i think so i, I think that in the case of this it's like his you know more recent works things like looking for eric insofar as it's not the most groundbreaking piece of work and also there is a big central contrivance in the plot in terms of you, know, you have a guy who is on you know community work for a gbh charge and just happens to have a brilliant nose for tasting whiskey but Ken Loach is so good at doing characters and injecting social realism in a way which isn't clunky and isn't obvious yeah. that I'm kind of willing to overlook it. So I don't think it's the Scottish Full Monty. Yeah. Not by a long shot, but it is. It will in the before we until we get another Full Monty, it will do very nicely. Right. Bit of mid-table blues now, isn't it? Number eight, American Reunion. Which you know, as we've said many times before, isn't funny enough. It can't decide whether it wants to be a. a proper gross-out film or a nostalgic one, and it, no, you can't have both ways. I was actually watching a little bit of Porky's again the other night, and you know, <laughs> felt really shameful Guilty for doing Guilty pleasures. So. Well, yes, but, but <laughs> the thing, I mean, if Porky's has any value at all, it's that it was so putrid and so, you know, completely honest about the fact that it was disgusting, that you felt, well, it's rubbish, but at least it's honest rubbish, whereas American Reunion isn't honest. Great TV series, Shame About the Film, number seven, Top Cat. It is, it's terrible. I mean, it basically takes everything that was great about the TV series, and particularly the, the, the flat panel 2D animation, and turns it into, you know, basically destroys it in a blaze of poor storytelling, shoddy animation and rubbish 3D. What to expect when you're expecting is which, it number six? Which is not getting any better, are yeah, they? Yeah, well, it's rubbish. I mean, it's another guestless comedy. I mean, all the jokes about pregnancy were done much better in nine months, which had you no know, fairly charming performances from Hugh Grant and Julianne Moore, who can do no wrong in my book. And also, now, as I said last week, I do not believe that Jennifer Lopez is a troubled single mother. I just don't. If you're going to have Jennifer Lopez in your film, cast her as something that we know Jennifer Lopez can do. I mean, the best thing that Jennifer Lopez ever did in films was her supporting role in Ants where she was alongside Woody Allen and does a yeah. very good job, but in this she's horribly miscast. It's Welcome Back to Sasha Baron Cohen, number five with The Dictator. Yeah. I think it's a great film. Yeah. You, I'll get that bit in first. Yes. Have you, did you actually go and see The Dictator? No, I haven't seen it in full. I've seen the trailers, though. They look great. Yeah, I, mean, I think we have a difference of opinion on Sasha Baron Cohen. I can understand why you think he's great. My take on him is he is a talented guy, but is at his best when he's being reined in by another director. Um, if, and I cited you know, the example of Tim Burton last week, who cast him as Adolfo Pirelli and Sweeney Todd, or also Martin Scorsese, who has, uh, gave him a supporting role in Hugo. I think that in this case, when he's being directed by Larry Charles and basically allowed to run free because Larry Charles is very big on the whole improvisation-based comedy, which there's nothing wrong with that, 
the gag very quickly runs out of steam and they do just feel like they're going after soft targets in the way that no borat started off really edgy and great with the running of the jew sequence but by the time you get them picking on the american feminist you think yeah you could try a bit harder so it's it's not great but i can understand why you like him the lovely scarlett johansson is at number four marvel's the avengers or the avengers assemble whichever way you like it. yeah and um, when we reviewed it we said that it's been changed to avengers assemble in this country but on the off chance that we might mistake it for the 60s tv series <laughs> as if you could or, or indeed the horrible 90s film that actually was scarlett would have been okay in the I can sort, yeah, because, and actually, Uma Thurman, who plays the Emma Peel role in the film, is, is red-headed in the yeah. Avengers adaptation, so I can kind of see where you're coming from. Um, and yes, um, certainly Scarlett Johansson is a much better actress than Uma Thurman. Basically, the Avengers I enjoyed... Ooh, that I is think, controversial for you, isn't she, Well, Saturday. she is. I'm sorry. I mean, Uma, Th Uma Thurman's one really good... Oh, hang on. No, I'm confusing her with someone else. I'll come back to that. I think, no, The Avengers is as good as we could have expected from what is essentially the tentpole to end all tentpoles. I still don't think Tom Hiddleston's convincing, and it is too long, and it doesn't embrace its silliness as well as Thor. But I will give all credit to Josh Whedon for getting a good balance between the action and the characters, and actually, in the midst of all these huge pyrotechnics that could easily tip over into Transformers territory, actually yeah. trying to say, no, actually, it's about the people trapped within the circumstances. The best scene in The Avengers is where you've got all the superheroes together in a room, um, trying to work out how they're going to track down the Tesseract, which is this note. It's the MacGuffin of the plot yeah. that Loki has stolen. And one by one, all their insecurities come out and they talk about being manipulated by the government. That's the core of the film. So, no, don't just go and see it for the special effects. At number three, it's Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones, Men in Black 3. Is this a sequel to many? Well, <laughs> I think so. It's not as bad as the second one, which which did feel horribly rehashed and perfunctory, but it's nowhere near as funny as entertaining as the first. The biggest problem is that the original Men in Black felt like, no, a mainstream blockbuster which actually had a kind of spiky presence behind it. You felt like there were a lot of things, in the same way as Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films, you yeah. felt that, that there was a lot of, you know, slightly edgy, subversive stuff slipping in under the radar that the executives weren't quite going to pick up on. It's like the thing that John Landis said about exploitation films. If you're going to do interesting films part of the process of doing that is fooling the people who are funding them so you think uh, it's i mean for instance there was a story about um the 1950s version of the blob where they went to religious groups for funding and the religious group said we're not giving funding to a science fiction for people getting killed yeah. and so the filmmaker said well actually it's about the eternal struggle of good and evil okay here's a million dollars so in the case of this no the original was a mainstream blockbuster that had some undercurrent of spikiness to it whereas this feels like it was written by a committee and that's a big problem snow white and the huntsman Number two. Uh, which is the better of the two Snow White reinterpretations that we've seen this year, if only because, unlike Mirror Mirror, it doesn't just degenerate into a series of visually flashy set pieces, but with terrible slapstick. It isn't great, but the special effects are pretty decent. The production design, no, is very nicely tuned. It's got a, no, a nice, slightly trashy pop video sensibility. And no, for a debut effort, it's quite accomplished. So I think it's good if you don't think about it too much. Yeah. But stick to the Disney. Yes, indeed. And a very interesting film at number one, Prometheus. Now, I went to see this on Wednesday night. It's the new film yeah. from Ridley Scott, and I said last week I was really looking forward to it. So I went to see it on Wednesday, and I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I think about it. Um, <laughs> my, my, at the moment, I think 
it is very deeply flawed insofar as there are too many characters. I mean, in the original Alien film, you had seven to focus on. In this case, yeah. you've got 17, of which I'm not, I didn't quite pick up on all the names of everyone. The plot is a bit of a mess insofar as, you know, the first hour when they know the, what they're looking for when they're going to the planet, and then when they get to the planet, yeah. it's kind of one explanation on top of another, and it does get a bit silly. And the mechanics of the Alien world don't work quite as seamlessly in the first film. I mean, you have the whole thing about acid for blood and so forth, but after that it gets a bit, you know, strange. And the ending does feel like it's setting up a sequel. But, and this is very important, the film is visually extraordinary. I mean, the opening section of it where you have this, this strange alien figure standing on this huge landscape looking over a waterfall and his body spontaneously disintegrates and falls into the water didn't remind me of the work of Terence Malick. And there are enough interesting and intriguing ideas in the film about the origin of mankind, you no, know, the nature of God as something simultaneously benevolent and malevolent yeah. that make me think, well, yes, it doesn't all work, Ridley, but I'm going to, you know, give you extra credit for trying. I mean, the, the best way to sum it up is it's Terence Malick's The Tree of Life in Space, and I mean that in both a good and a bad way. It's quite a long film, isn't it? Two and a half hours, I yeah. think, um, and it doesn't need to be that long, but... Yeah. Like I say, I am willing to be more forgiving of it than I otherwise would be because there is a lot of interesting stuff in there this that just can't quite get out. This is the film that's caused all the rows because so many copies have been made in 3D on it. Um, I haven't heard about that, actually. Yeah. I mean, I saw it in 2D and it was reasonably easy to get a 2D screening. Yeah. Um, but, but certainly it's been pushed in 3D, I, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I, I, I think somebody was saying that 70% of the copies had been made in 3D. Yeah. Only 30%. I can do sums in 2D. Um, <laughs> That's reassuring at uh, <laughs> yes. this late in the morning. <laughs> and the view that it wasn't much better in 3D. No, I mean, I, I mean, certainly not to give anything away, but the caesarean sequence, which owes a lot to Andrzej Zawoski's possession, I would not want to see that in 3D. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Right. <laughs> Recommendations. Uh, Prometheus, but with certain conditions. The Avengers, if you haven't seen it already, and um, either Moonrise Kingdom or The Angel's Share as an outside bid. Bit of a mix bunch this week. Yeah, and we'll come on to that again in the new releases. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Annick. Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Coming up to 25 past 10. Uh, thanks to Adam for texting into the show. Good to hear you're listening this morning. Now, if people were listening much earlier this morning, shortly after 8 o'clock, Louis Denny was in the studio. And when I announced that our uh, cult film this week was going to be Kick-Ass, he was really enthusing, saying it's a brilliant film. Great. I know nothing about it, so over to you. Right. Well, thank you very much, Louis, for giving me all the build-up I need. So, Kick-Ass, 2010, a black comedy superhero film based on the graphic novels by Mark Miller, and no relation, of course, to Professor Miller from the Mick Travis trilogy, <laughs> considering we were talking about the Caesarean section earlier yes. on in Prometheus. Directed by Matthew Vaughan, who has a career which you could call rags to riches, or no, a career of, you know, Present, pleasant surprise from low expectations because yeah. he started out as Guy Ritchie's producer oh, right. on Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch, which, you know, I, I've not been a big fan of Guy Ritchie's early work. Um, and, you know, you'd look at someone and think, well, if that's what you're starting with and that's what you do, yeah. where do you go? Then he made his debut with Layer Cake, which was, you know, originally intended for Guy Ritchie but was slightly better handled. It was a kind of stylish, very graphic but somewhat meat-headed gangster film with a very good performance by Daniel Craig. And Layer Cake is largely seen in hindsight as the film that got Daniel, Ra Daniel Craig the Bond gig because yeah. he was demonstrating that he could do edgy, tough 
leading yeah. roles at the no at the point when he wasn't really up to that sort of thing because I think the the most high profile thing he'd done before that was his supporting role in Road to Perdition in which he's not tough at all. Um, then he made Stardust, which I really love. It's a really great family film based upon you know, the novels of Neil Gaiman, who wrote Coraline. All star cast including Claire Danes, who we don't see enough of as a living star, and Michelle Pfeiffer as a five hundred year old witch, in which she's brilliant. Yeah. If you haven't seen Stardust, it is one of the best family films of the last ten years. Uh, and then most recently he made X-Men First Class. He's also, you no, know, in celebrity circles, quite famous because of the fact that, lucky man that he is, he's married to Claudia Schiffer, which <laughs> is no bad thing. Yes. So, uh, this was co-written by Jane Goldman, who is, you no, know, the other half of Jonathan Ross, best known for her sort of big red hair, and yeah. she also co-wrote Stardust and recently adapted The Woman in Black, so you might be able to see a couple of through yeah. lines when you go on Monday. Filmed on a budget of $28 million, uh, and it's notable for being what's called a negative pickup, which you don't get very often these days, where basically you make the film independently and then you sell the finished film to a studio for distribution, but the director or producers keep all the rights. Yeah. So when John Landis made An American Wealth in London, that was negative pickup, where he made sure he had all the rights to all the songs in yeah. the order that he had them so that when they put it out, they could keep it. And John Landis had a very bad experience later in his career oh. with Trading Places, which he made for Universal, yeah. where basically they got the, all the music that he'd wanted for the cinema release, because if you know John Landis's comedies, the choice of music is very important. But when they came to put it out on a home video, Universal hadn't cleared the rights for three songs, so either they just changed yeah. the music or there were no sounds, yeah. and he actually tried to sue Universal. So, no, that's interesting. The film took about $96 million overall, but most of that was down to DVD sales. It didn't do anything like in well, as well in theatres as we'd expected. The, it was also subject to quite a bit of controversy because of the amount of violence in the film f uh, because the film was given an R rating and a 15 certificate yeah. and also one moment where a character uh, a 12 year old girl played by Chloe Moretz uses the C word mm. which was unprecedented in 15 Ro Roger Ebert particularly hated the film saying it was morally reprehensible but then again considering Roger Ebert's attitude towards a clockwork orange I think we can take his his view with a pinch of salt so the story is it follows an ordinary New York teenager called Dave Lejewski played by Aaron Johnson who's going to be in the new adaptation of Anna Karenina uh, very shortly, yeah. uh, who is a big comic book fan, and he is very angry that ordinary people don't intervene to stop crime on the streets. You know, says, so, you know, why is it that people don't <laughs> just become superheroes? And he decides to put this right by becoming a masked vigilante, so he buys a bodysuit online, finds himself <laughs> a, finds a couple of big sticks, and yes. goes out, and on his first night, he gets, you no know, his ass kicked by, you no, know, he gets stabbed by a gang and rung over, and he's taken to hospital, and he has surgery, but he's left with, you no know, slightly damaged nerves which means that he is less impervious to pain and that's his you no know, super ability of no i can feel pain a little bit less than everyone else because i don't have anything else so he tries again when he intervenes in a gang attack his actions are taped and put online and he becomes kick-ass and starts his own <laughs> myspace yeah. page and people can email him to come out and you know to uh, to fix stuff and in the midst of all this a host of other characters crop up in the central subplot involves a father and daughter crime fighting team called big daddy played by nicholas cage and hit girl played by claire Moretz, who are fighting against a gang boss called Frank D'Amico, played by Mark Strong, who plays a villain in pretty much everything yeah. he does and very well, and his son, Chris, played by Christopher Mintz Plass, who, in the Porky's reference I made earlier on, was the star of Superbad a few years yeah. ago. So, the interesting point to make about Kick-Ass, first of all, is that in terms of comic book adaptations in films, there is a kind of cycle of light and dark in the different adaptations. In every period of films and characters, every pe period in which, you know, 
which comes along and says, we're going to take the character seriously, we're going to look at the subtext, it's going yeah. to be political, is followed by another wave which says, no, actually, let's just do the camp silly stuff and vice versa. Yeah. So, for instance, if you look at the Batman series, you start off with the TV series, which is camp, yeah. then you get to Tim Burton, which is dark and edgy, then you go back to Joel Schumacher, which is camp and incredibly silly, and now with Christopher Nolan, it's very much in the dark yeah. vein again. And I dare say that when Batman is rebooted again, which inevitably will happen, they may well go back in a sillier direction. Yeah. Or, alternatively, if you look at the Spider-Man series, which, you know, the three films by Sam Raimi are sort of camp and goofy, and, you know, because, you know, Raimi's a horror comedy director yeah. who understands that it's very funny to get people hit over the head with frying pans <laughs> a lot, and, I mean, he was inspired yeah. greatly by the Three Stooges. And now the amazing Spider-Man, directed by Mark Webb, who did 500 Days of Summer, which is bleh, um, it seems to be going in a much more sort of emo-orientated direction. I don't know whether that would be as good as the Raimi films, but, no, you see where the cycle comes yeah. in. Kick-Ass is interesting for the fact that it completely breaks this cycle, because you have the combination of the dark, moody, intense side of comics, you know, with introspective heroes on rooftops looking over the cities in the rain, that kind of classic Frank Miller image, with a knowing earthiness and their tongue so far in their cheek that if it was any further in, it would be <laughs> poking out the other side. And the film holds these conflicting elements together with very memorable performances, Vaughan's striking visuals, and the result is, well, it lives up to its name, should we say. Yeah. Whereas some comic book adaptations have just lifted the characters out of the books and and put them awkwardly in the real world. You get the sense that Kick-Ass is very much designed in you know, a, a very aesthetically similar parallel universe. It, it's dripping with pastiches of superheroes and no character, whether it's for Marvel or DC or anything yeah. else, is left unscathed. I mean, there's overt... Dis on the one hand, you have things like overt discussions about comic books between the characters. I mean, there's a moment where, you know, someone says, you know what the big difference is between Spider-Man and Peter Parker? Spider-Man gets the girl. And <laughs> so there's kind of those big overt discussions. Yeah. On the other hand, you have the kind of the in-jokey nods. There is an extended sequence of Nicolas Cage getting dressed up in his big dandy costume, which looks like Batman because it's got yeah. the latex hood. And there's a sequence of him standing in front of a mirror, spray-painting black across his eyes. And that's an in-joke because of the fact that when Michael Keaton did Batman... They fitted him in the suit with the cowl, but they found out that his eyes looked still kind of glaring and white, so they had to spray paint his whole yeah. face black to make it look like so. So for people who've grown up with those kind of comic films, we can think, oh, I see, that's where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, but although there is this real encyclopedic knowledge of comics in there, and there's bits of Ghost World in there as well, and bits of EC Comics to a certain extent, you don't have to be someone with an encyclopedic knowledge. You don't have to be Kevin Smith or Quentin Tarantino to enjoy Kick-Ass, and what makes it refreshing is the fact that it doesn't take itself too seriously. You know, it offers enough in the way of darkness in terms of, well, certainly in terms of the violent aspects to satisfy fans of Christopher Nolan, fans of Tim Burton who want to see the characters done seriously and want to talk about yeah. the people trapped within the circumstances. But it never risks going into the territory of something like Sin City, which from, I mean, loads of people love Sin City because of the fact that it did the literal comic book structure. But the problem I had with Sin City was that it just got so self-absorbed that it eventually became a bit ponderous and the fact that no, everything is narrated in Sin City, everything is explained, and you think, just let me watch the film. Um, the action sequences in particular are really great. They're you know, very inventively choreographed. Matthew Vaughan, obviously, you know, because of his background in layer cake, he understands how to do head-cracking violence yeah. in a way which is visually arresting. And you know, it actually reminded me a little bit of... Have you seen things like... Um, you're familiar with the works of Zhang Jimu, who did things like Raise the Red Lantern and Hero and House mm. of Flying Daggers. You know, oh. Very, very famous martial arts director. Yeah. And, you know, famous for... In particular, there's a sequence in House of Flying Daggers where two uh, lovers of the 
same girl, played by uh, Zhang Ziyi, are running across water having a sword fight, yeah. and it's no, it's it's physically impossible, but it's beautiful, <laughs> and that's the kind of thing. The one thing I would, the phrase that I would use to sum up Kick-Ass is knowing fun, because there are lots of familiar elements in, the, in the, both the plot and the characters. I mean, we've lost count of how many films there have been about, you no know, gangsters being taken on by masked vigilantes, and the idea of ordinary people becoming superheroes is nothing new in itself. I mean, you can also look at it's this, the counterpart of this film called Super, which attempted to do that with a lot more violence yeah. and a lot more sort of moral duplicity. I mean, that was like, if Cecil B. DeMille made a comic book film, that's what it would be like, because there's <laughs> lots and lots of bad yeah. stuff, and then God comes in at the end to say it's okay, which if you know Cecil B. DeMille, that's how all his films work, and they're better or worse for it. And the film, you no. Know, understands you know, the prestige of the best comic book works like Batman Begins yeah. and so forth, but it also has the confidence to put up its hands and say, you know what, we're not going to do that. Not because we can't, but because you do yeah. it your way, we're doing it our way, and that's it. And there is a real sense of relish for me in the way that Kick-Ass tackles the cliché of the superhero film and just twists them for its own enjoyment. I mean, if this had been made by somebody like Zack Snyder, who did the adaptation of Watchmen, the long-awaited yeah. adaptation of Watchmen, have you seen Watchmen? Uh, no. No, you're not missing much. Uh, Basically, the central premise of you no know, ordinary people trying to become superheroes would have been treated so... Because the thing with Zack Snyder is that he has this tendency to try and be portentous and then he just backs off and becomes flippant. So, in, yeah. for instance, in Watchmen, there are whole sequences where you'll have you no know, characters... You know, talking about the threat of nuclear war, talking about the police hunting them, and then it will cut to them having sex in a, in a bunch <laughs> of latex. And you think, yeah. yeah, how seriously do you want to take this, Zach? Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, Vaughan just basically says, look, let's cut through all the pseudo-intellectual claptrap. Let's provide, you know, the simple common sense answers. You know, the reason that you would, you know, ordinary people don't become a superhero is not because you might get ostracized by the law or you might lose your family. It's because you would get your head kicked in. And it would be <laughs> very painful and it's a very yeah. stupid idea. Yeah. So it just has that real thing of let's just cut to the chase and do yeah. what you want to do and get people beaten up and that's fine um like i say the film is situated in a completely you no know, parallel universe and brings all the kind of the cliches of the superhero genre up to date so you know it has things no no why and lots of the changes they make make complete sense you know why would you waste time running around answering distress calls from people in the street when it's much easier for people to send you emails and say come help yeah you know why would you have a bat signal in the sky when you can just send someone a text yes. um why would you drive a massively conspicuous batmobile when a souped up mustang would do just as well <laughs> and no these this is the nub of kick-ass the fact that you know it's a very affectionate but savage satire which has got a very playful and dark sense of yeah. humor and says yeah we understand why you do it this way but the fact is it's 2010 now and things have changed yeah. and we're leading yeah. the way there is an actual comparison between kick-ass and scott pilgrim versus the world which we talked about earlier this year or late yeah. last year i think it might have been um and which i said was one of the best films of that yeah. year and no both films were developed around the same time as the comics that spawned them both films are visually outstanding with a very literalistic comic book style more so with scott pilgrim i think just yeah. because of the way it uses you know the the kapows coming off the screen <laughs> and so forth and both take a familiar romantic storyline and inject it with new life through a series of bold creative decisions but the actual purpose behind them is very different scott pilgrim is a film very much that wants you to to be charmed by it and yeah. to sort of chuckle at the the great overblown special effects sequences that unfold i mean certainly in you know, the the showdown with with um gideon graves i think the character played by jason schwartzman where you yeah. have the chewing gum joke and you have him being sort of kicked around and the swishy hair that jason schwartzman <laughs> yeah. just does so well that's very much wanting to make you laugh whereas kick-ass 
it the laughter comes tinged with a, a sense of whoa how far are you going to go with this kind of thing because it is yeah absolute top end 15 and there were lots of people asking it for it for a note for it to be an 18 there yeah. is apparently an unrated 18 certificate cut which was available no the, the deleted scenes were put back in certain dvd releases but i don't think that's on the uk release there are several scenes in kick-ass which are difficult to sit through even for people you know like myself who are well versed yeah. in comic book violence and understand you know no matter how far you go it's comic yeah. book it's not real yeah. i mean you no know, to give you an example with the avengers recently there's a moment in the avengers where uh, Mark Ruffalo has transformed into the Incredible Hulk and he's bashing his way all over this aeroplane trying to get rid of Loki's soldiers. And there's a moment when he, you know, a bunch of them get together and throw him off the ship and he starts yeah. falling thousands and thousands of feet. And your first instinct is not, <gasps> your first instinct is, he'll be back. <laughs> and sure enough, he lands yeah. on a massive greenhouse and then gets up and just walks away because that's how comic book violence yeah. works. I mean, yes, Marvel's at the sillier end of comic book, but, you know, still. Um, for the most part, the violent scenes are tongue-in-cheek. I mean, when Aaron Johnson is getting smashed up by the gangsters, when he gets run over, when you have, you know, the sequence towards the beginning of, you know, uh, there's a sequence where Big Daddy shoots Hit Girl in the chest, and then yeah. it, we take her you know, top off and she's wearing Kevlar, so it's, oh, the fool does very good but there is no there are a couple of scenes in it which do take do you remember in the dark night when there's the the joker's videotape where the guy's typed up tied yeah. up and goes yeah. are you the real batman <laughs> why are you dressed up like him yeah. and it takes there's a sequence in kick-ass where kick-ass and big daddy are tied to a chair beaten up and then have a fire lit underneath them and it takes that sort of dark night video yeah. aesthetic and pushes it as far as it goes i mean i was squirming a bit which yeah. is a compliment as much as anything because i think that scene needed to be tough yeah um the controversy surrounding the film was caused by the violence in the fan language including an alpha infamous section of colin moretz's character saying all right you and then the c word yeah. let's see what you're made of as before, the violence is clearly comic book insofar as characters can get hurt and they do die, but like Scott Pilgrim, the film does not ask you to enjoy or revel in their pain. I mean, yeah. one of the big things about the BBFC, whenever they're looking for a film to give an 18 certificate to, they will give us a film an 18 certificate if it is in any way glorifying of violence or instructional of violence. I mean, for yeah. instance, Tracy Emin's film, um, I think it was called Big Top or something like that, was instantly rated 18 because of yeah. a section two minutes in of someone i think cutting their wrist or something which they thought it was shot in such a way as to teach people how to do it as well as yeah. passively glorifying them. I and mean, i haven't seen the whole of big top but i gather it's not very good um so you no know, it it does rely on you know you having this kind of caveat of yeah. you know, yes it's brutal but it's not real and it's yeah. not telling me to do this i mean certainly no one's telling you to go around and smash people up in bodysuits or shoot 12 year old girls the violence towards Hit Girl in particular is very carefully choreographed so that all the power of the, is in the suggestion rather than the action, not just in yep. no, the sequence where she gets shot in the chest by her dad, who has a bit of a, a weapons fetish, as we'll come on to in a second. But it's no... You make us think that there's something happening that isn't happening, and then our emotional response plays out, and the film sort of comes in and says, gotcha, now yep. let's go on and do the next thing. As for the language, 
it's largely what you get because of the fact that the film is you know, very knowingly bad taste. The best review I ever read of the film was from The Guardian's review of Pete Bradshaw, who described it as an explosion in a bad taste factory. Um, so it makes no bones about, no, it's less politically, less than politically yeah. correct scenes. I mean, there is a whole section of Nicolas Cage's character who basically is effectively an arms dealer and he has sort of basements full of hand grenades and bazookas and rocket launchers yeah. and so forth and it kind of paints him as this heroic figure and you think, okay, Yes, he's completely insane, but I kind of like him because it's yeah. Nicholas Cage. Excuse me, running out of breath. Um, because of the fact that it was financed independently and then they struggled for a long time to get a studio to distribute it, it gets away with a lot of things that, you know, in a modern day blockbuster would either have just ended up on the cutting room floor or would have been taken out at test yeah. screenings. I mean, the opening sequence, which parodies Spider-Man, sets the tone and there is no attempt to sanitise Kick-Ass to just give in to of demands of, oh, we could make more money if we take this bit out. Yeah. And you may, you can like or not like the bad taste humour, you can like or not like the language, you can like or not like yeah. the violence, but you have to admire the fact that someone actually said, I want to go the whole hog with this yeah. film, I want to put my version out and I'm not just going to give in to studio demands. Moreover, I think, no, the full-on and bloodier scenes in Kick-Ass are counterbalanced by the development surrounding the central characters. I mean, like Scott Pilgrim, it is on one level a coming-of-age story, and it's interesting you know, that comic books have become the coming-of-age device where previous generations would have had things like yeah. the films of John Hughes, or no, people in the 70s would have had Animal House and yeah. stuff like that, and you would have had Gregory's Girl. Um, and the central romance between you know, Aaron Johnson's character and his sort of on-off girlfriend, Katie, which is an, again a nod to Spider-Man because of the fact yeah. that Peter Parker and Mary Jane are constantly yeah. on and then they're off again. Um, it does feel genuine, as do you know, Dave's circle of comic book-obsessed friends who derive endless pressure from you know, Katie's misunderstanding about his sexual because basically yeah. there's a joke about when Aaron Johnson's character first gets beaten up and his suit is ripped off him, he's found stark naked outside her house and the, her friends assume that he's gay. <laughs> so they kind of make yeah. a joke about, you know, saying when Katie's trying to get off with him, they say, well, you know, he's actually not that interested. So she thinks that he's not, in, she's, yeah. he's not interested in her. And it, oh, you know, it's a farcical thing, but it works very well. In the middle of it, you've got the near pantomime performance of Nicolas Cage. Who, you know, and Nicolas Cage is an interesting actor because he is an example of someone, if, if you put him in the hands of a good director, and you allow him to go over the top in a certain way, then he's yeah. brilliant. So in this case, you no know, Matthew Vaughan has clearly said to him, do your best Adam West impression, and then do the Elvis thing that you did in Wild at Heart, and somehow we'll meet in the middle. And he does that thing of acting very hammy, but in a way that's completely <laughs> endearing and stuff. Yeah. I'm going to go out and fight this crime. And if you want to come with me, then you do this. <laughs> it's, 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 and that was a bit yeah. more William Shatner, but you get yeah. what I'm trying to say. Uh, Mark Strong doing his no typical token bad guy role, but doing it with quite a yeah. bit of character, and he does a good New York accent. And Chloe Moretz, who you know, subsequently was in things like 500 Days of Summer and the remake of Let Me In. She's a very talented young actress. Um, yeah, so that's great. So to sum up, I think it's on a par with Scott Pilgrim as both a film that's destined for cult status and one of the best films of 2010. Its uncompromising approach to both content and characters is refreshing in an age where so many comic book films are watered down and sanitised. It's got striking visuals, the dialogue's witty, the action's superb, and above all, it's a dark, humid celebration of comics, which is a jagged edge to behold, and it's there good fun. There you are, that ludicrous outfit. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have some music. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Anik. This is Lionheart Radio. 
back from the days when she could sing Shirley Bassey and Goldfinger. Controversial, <laughs> but she's not listening, so I'll let you off. <laughs> Tom Jones was brilliant on Monday nights. Some of the other more mature singers I have my uh, my issues with, but anyway. Fair enough. Yes. Shall we talk about next week's cult film before we get we on? We should, shouldn't we? It's back to 1968. Night of the Living Dead. Yes. Debut film by George A. Romero, not to be missed. Should be fun. Right. The new releases then, we start with a very, very long film, three hours and 22 minutes. Woody Allen, a documentary. Yeah, but you can kind of see why they would need three hours and 22 yes, minutes to get in. It's a yes. Yeah, so it's the new film by Robert B. Vida or Weeder, who directed things like How to Lose Friends and Alienate People, but more pertinent to this, he made a documentary called Lenny Bruce Swear to Tell the Truth, which is, of course, a reference to the fact that Lenny Bruce used to swear quite a lot and, yeah. you know, got in a lot of hot water. There's that great line in, um that Genesis uh, track from The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, you know, where the universe is backwards and knows that Lenny Bruce declares a truce and plays his other hand, yeah. you know, being, being a very soft-hearted comedian. So it's a documentary, as the title suggests, about Woody Allen, which looks at his entire life and career right up to his most recent release, which was Midnight in Paris. And uh, a very comprehensive collection of interviews, Diane Keaton, Scarlett Johansson, Owen Wilson, Mia Farrow, Naomi Watts, and to some extent the great man himself, which is unusual because Woody Allen, although he used to give interviews quite a lot in recent years has become very reticent yeah. about talking yeah. on camera and uh, i mean he, he, i don't think he's changed an awful lot specifically but just he, he's getting a bit older it's it is long i will say that and it, it's the kind of documentary that you'd probably watch in chunks on dvd rather than in one go depending on how high your threshold for woody allen is because yeah. you quite like him don't you yeah i do yes yeah. yes but three and a half hours it's, yeah it's, it's something you'd watch in in chunks but bear in mind that some of his stuff like hannah yeah. and her sisters does go on quite a bit i mean it doesn't yeah. feel like it obviously but it's yeah. quite long I know. I think it's it's very good because, like all good documentaries, it will interest the casual viewer while rewarding the fan because the fans will love listening to all Woody Allen's actors talking about him and know the, the yeah. process of how he writes his scripts. Uh, know this idea that somewhere he's got this big bag of jokes that he wrote in the 1970s, and every time he wants a new script, he just takes a new gag <laughs> out and starts off. Random order. Yes, yes. exactly. Uh, and the casual viewers you know who have an image of of Woody Allen in the popular culture, which is an, no an increasingly unfunny, neurotic old man who occasionally plays clarinet will actually, you know, will it'll prove the way into his work. I mean, I think yeah. certainly if you've seen Woody Allen's London period films, things like Match Point and so forth, which are not great by any means, then it's a good way of actually redressing the balance. I mean, it took me a long time to get a handle on Woody Allen. I remember being shown Annie Hall when I was 14 or 15 and turning yeah. it off after 10 minutes because I hated his character so much. <laughs> uh, but yes. now, of course, I understand how stupid yeah. that is. So it's very well assembled. It's nicely balanced, although it is ultimately a little sympathetic towards Alan because it's not a sort of biting critique of any of his films. Um, it is worth seeing, though I would say kind of either go to a cinema where they're showing it with an intermission, I think the Tyneside Mill were doing, or yeah. wait for it on DVD. But either way, it's a very good film. From the very long to the very short... Um, one hour and 24 minutes, Casa de Mi Padre. Yes. Something like that. Yeah, you're pretty good. Uh, it's the new comedy starring Will Ferrell, <sighs> which is also the debut film by Matt Piedmont. It's one of four debut features we've got out this week, yeah. so, which is quite encouraging. Uh, it's a pastiche of westerns and Mexican soap operas, um, starring Will Ferrell as Armando Alvarez, who works on his father's ranch, and he has to stop the ranch from falling into the hands of an evil drug band paid by Gil Garcia Bernal, who, of course, played Che Guevara in The Motorcycle yeah. Diaries. He's a very good actor. Um, so... 
He's going to take the ranch over because Will Ferrell's brother owes him money, and while trying to get the ranch back, he inadvertently falls in love with his brother's fiancée called Sonia, played by Genesis Rodriguez. So you get that sort of soap opera. You know, everyone's sleeping with each other, everyone's backstabbing yeah. each other, and it's, it's all in a very sort of hysterical way. The twist is that it's done entirely in Spanish, and apparently Will Ferrell was taught to speak Spanish intensively in a month, and they shot the film over 28 days for $6 million. Oh, so, so yeah. it's clearly a passion project for the director, and it's funnier and more charming than anything that Will Ferrell has done in the last five or six years, because he does have a reputation, because he comes out of Saturday Night Live, yeah. he has a reputation of being someone who will, A, stretch his jokes perilously thin, but also a, is a bit of a gurner. Certainly if you look at something like Elf or Angerman, not Angerman, Anchorman, that's all he spends his time doing, because the whole th joke in Anchorman is, I've got a moustache on and I'm slightly sexist. Oh, isn't it hilarious? Yeah. No. Um, the problem with the film is, now, although it recreates the look of westerns and soap operas very nicely, because you've got the bright colours and the big yeah. vistas and the sub-Pedra Madovar melodramatic tone, the problem is that the gags aren't quite good enough to sustain the film. I mean, the spoofing of westerns is okay, but it's not Blazing Saddles and it's not John Landis's Three Amigos, which in itself had problems. And the gag of doing it in Spanish is okay, but after a while the subtitle jokes start to fall flat. So it's by no means a bad film. But it could have been tightened up just a little bit more, and it needed a few more laughs. Yeah. Mixed opinions from the critics. Yes, I think a lot of people yes. admire it for the fact that they've made it's yes. an American film that was made yes. for the Hispanic community. So just to show I can mangle the Spanish language as good as anyone, <laughs> uh, Robbie Collin in the Daily Telegraph, no es comico, señor Ferrell. I can get what that means. Yes. He didn't so, like it. Mm -hmm. And uh, Peter Travers, Rolling Stone, Ferrell is an hombre loco, me gusta. Yes. I think he liked it. <laughs> right, a fantastic fear of everything is next. Yeah, no, this is a, this is an odd little film. It's the debut effort by Chris Hopewell and Crispian Mills, both of you come out from music videos. And the story follows a character called Jack, played by Simon Pegg, good start, who is a children's author who, s who desperately wants to be a successful crime novelist. And yeah. to that end, he conducts detailed research into the lives of Victorian serial killers and in the process develops an irrational fear of being murdered. And when a Hollywood studio wants to make a film out of his novel, he is forced to confront all his childhood fears, including hedgehogs and the laundrette. <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah, it is. I mean, if you've seen the trailer, the trailer is excellent. I mean, it's, yeah. it's got really good jokes in it. It's, it is completely loopy. I mean, the directors come out, like I say, for music videos, and there is a kind of Michel Gondry light approach to it because of the use yeah. of organic physical effects and the, the multiple perspectives and the, the awkward zooms and so forth. It isn't a great film by any means, but I like the fact that Simon Pegg has used the box office appeal that he got from doing Mission yeah. Impossible and Shaun of the Dead eventually to actually give an audience to stuff that, actually, that otherwise would not have seen the light of day. So it's, it is unhinged, it is bonkers, it is uneven, but go see it because it's, no, it's quirky and interesting. Yeah, sound fun. Red Tails is next. Yeah, um, this is a little more problematic in a way. Um, it's the day before my Anthony Hemingway with an unofficial directing credit for George Lucas which normally prompts the response, <laughs> run a mile. <laughs> yes, indeed. Apparently what yes. happened was that they, they finished the film, but then they looked at it and decided it needed reshoots, and Hemingway wasn't available, so Lucas said, well, okay, I'll do it, because yeah. his company, Lucasfilm, is the people behind it. So it's based on the true story of African-American pilots who trained in the U.S. Air Force in World War II, uh, set in 1944 when the USA is struggling to get its bombers to targets in Japan, and they call on the pilots of the Tuskegee, or Tuskegee program, which are training African-Americans 
chance to fight yeah. and they get a chance to fly for the first time just as their you know uh, program is about to be closed down on the plus side it's hard as in the right place it's made with the very best intentions and it would be very easy to just take against it because george lucas and the director's chair but i'm not falling yeah. for that it is a story that deserved to be trolled. You know, there's the interesting thing about how the fact that you know, the war was won by people who, it argues that, you know, people who were not even considered American citizens actually made one of the biggest contributions to ensuring yeah. that the war was over. And it does what, I mean, do you remember Battle of Britain, the 1969 film? Yes, yes. And do you remember the ending of Battle of Britain where they were very careful, they list the casualties according to nationality. Yeah. And they were very careful to emphasise that all the different nationalities, yeah. including yeah. like the Polish pirates who play the role. Well, it does that as well by showing the role of minorities in the war yeah. uh, in the exact opposite to what Pearl Harbor did which was basically we beat the Japanese with three men and a stick yes uh, and they were American yes that was, <laughs> yeah and exactly you know, the great tagline of Pearl Harbor is this time we win which is just no nah. so those are the good things about it the problem is that it is riddled with cliches I mean much of the dialogue certainly in the trailer it's motivational speeches all the way the characters like Battle of Britain are often interchangeable I mean one of the problems with Battle of Britain is you get people like Michael Caine who turn up for five minutes and then get shot down and you never hear from them again and that's a problem the aerial scenes are impressively rendered but they do feel strangely like a video game whereas battle britain scenes always felt very physical because they yeah. had got this actual yeah. fleet of spitfires so it's it's hard to in the right place but for all the problems with battle of britain i would watch that instead the Pact is next. Yeah, one of two horror films coming out this week. It's uh, the debut film by Nicholas McCarthy. And the story follows two sisters called Nicole and Annie, who reluctantly return to their childhood home to pay their last respects after the death of their mother. They start hearing strange noises in the night. They start having bad dreams. There's a strange noise coming from the cellar, and then all hell breaks loose. I mean... As with the innkeepers, which we'll come on to in a second, there is nothing here that you haven't seen before, you know. It sounds a bit formulaic. Yes, I mean, plot spoiler alert, someone's in the basement or the attic, which is obviously <laughs> Rebecca, which in itself is inspired yeah. by Jane Eyre. There are hints of poltergeist insofar as it gets sillier as more stuff and more people are thrown around, and that in itself yeah. refers to the exorcist. It's directed in a nuts and bolts fashion by McCarthy, but it's not scary enough to even satisfy on DVD, so stay away. The Innkeepers, then, finally. Okay, it's the new film by Ty West, who previously made House of the Devil, and is regarded in some quarters as you know, an ingenue of horrors and someone who is a very interesting young director. To be honest, I think he's a bit overrated. So, it's a haunted house film, which follows two employees of the Yankee Peddler Inn, played by Sarah Paxter and Pete Healy. And they work in a hotel in which a woman hung herself decades ago. The hotel is about to be closed, it's the last weekend, and they hire a couple of ghost hunters to find evidence of the ghost on the ground well if we can find it we can make money and sell our story and so forth so it is a kind of box ticking exercise of you know you've got the creaks and shadows of the haunting you've got the hotel setting and history repeating itself with the shining yeah. you've got the creepy kids from the others or the orphanage and all the ghost hunting stuff thrown in which is a bit like Blair Witch or a bit like sort of you no know, paranormal activity because there's microphones and recordings and so forth I mean it le at the very least it's it's good because it's not found footage because that really would have yeah. tried my patience it does what it says on the tin as a sort of genre exercise but again it's not quite scary enough to cut the mustard on its own right all right so a mixed bunch this week we've got some recommendations woody allen's documentary is the film of the week but if you can't catch that as an outside bet a fantastic fear of everything okay right that's it for today it's so it's enjoy the annick festival loads going on this afternoon it all kicks off at 12 o'clock with the procession and then one o'clock we've got the town crier competition and then there's dancing and music on throughout the day 
Well worth going to see Pasadena Roof Orchestra tonight at the Annick Playhouse, but Lush Acoustic in the Marketplace. Carl Steinson, Jamie Robb and many others should be good. Good stuff. So you're back with us Thursday? One or three, yes, with another dose of mix and match with Mumby, and then I will see you. You'll be you. getting all excited for the torch coming, won't you? Yes, I will, in yes. my own way. <laughs> and then we will be back, like I say, next week between 10 and 11 to look yes. at George A. Romero's Night of yes. the Living Dead. And before that, I'll see you at the Radiothon on, uh, sorry, the Radio Aid on Friday yes. night. Yes. We can see, have an impromptu Radiothon if you want to. See, but not here. Because <laughs> I... <laughs> I was just about to sing that line from Lily the Pink, but I think yeah. I'll resist It should be a great night. <laughs> Ignore the jokes. It is going to be a fantastic night. Uh, eight really good bands lined up. It should be a fantastic night, so uh, enjoy it. Um, I'm back hopefully Thursday morning with a, an impromptu breakfast show for The Torch coming to Annick. Have a great week. Enjoy the festival. Uh, if you're down at the passages Thursday evening, looking forward to seeing you all there as well. should be good. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And we're all back next Saturday. Fantastic. Right. Uh, Jenny's coming up with the news now. It's coming up to 11 o'clock. Bye-bye. Lionheart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.